I'm going to need to use this, and I realize it's very small. Israel, unfortunately, is a north-south oriented country uh, geographically, and I really need uh, to turn this thing kind of that way, but uh, it doesn't do that, so I will try to get out of the way of it when I when I need it and explain something. We're going to enter a couple of uh, verses in Luke. I only intend to cover about three verses in Luke uh, today because we're, we're bumping into um, an event in the life of uh, Jesus and the disciples that is very, very important to understand. And it's covered more fully in Matthew than it is in Luke. So I'm going to go through Matthew also. We're not going to go through this entire thing today. I want to just sort of introduce this today and give you a feel that perhaps uh, you have not uh, had before of, of just what's going on and, and uh, why it's uniquely appropriate that it go on in the specific place it's happening. Uh, so <clears throat> with that in mind, turn to Luke uh, chapter 9. Uh, let's see, verse 18. We're going to specifically be, be focusing initially on uh, verses 18, 19, and 20 of Luke chapter 9. It's fascinating when you look at the uh, gospel writers and their, their variegated way of approaching. Uh, each of the four gospel writers is, is, has a different tack and a different approach and a different emphasis. And that's, of course, uh, purposeful. That's, that's given to them by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but what is happening in Luke, Luke is a historian, as we saw last week, he's writing to this friend of his named Theophilus, and he's writing history, and he, he chooses, as the others do, um, unique events to, to speak about and not to speak about. In uh, this case, Luke is not going to tell you that what is happening here is happening in a place called Caesarea Philippi. He's the only one that doesn't talk about that. Now, John doesn't talk about it either. But John is so unique that he is usually called in commentators the maverick gospel. Not because there's anything pejorative in that term, but it's so different from the other three that, that uh, John is, is very unique among the gospel writers. But here in Luke, we have been tracking these disciples and the training that Jesus is, has been giving them. And Luke all of them, but especially I think Luke, when you, when you really uh, get between the words of Luke, you, you see that the drama keeps building and building and building. And that is really going to be the case today. We have, uh, have, have seen him move toward an objective and the intensity with uh, his interaction of the disciples uh, has been moving in the same light. His disciples by this point have seen a lot from this Savior. Uh, they have seen him perform many, many things, and they have even been sent out uh, to begin that process of, of uh, grasping what they have seen and employing it in their own hearts and lives. Uh, they're going to be sent on a mission, and they're not quite certain yet what this mission is, uh, but uh, they have begun to act uh, toward that. Now, Jesus is going to inform them soon that he is going to leave behind his Galilean ministry. Most of what he's been doing 
so far. I'm going to try desperately to keep out of the way of all this. Um, that's the Dead Sea down there. That's the Sea of Galilee. So this region, you remember last week we introduced Herod and his family. Herod the Great uh, was, was uh, <clears throat> around until about 4 B.C. Herod, Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., just about the time Jesus is born. That's why he's trying to take care of all those young babies in Bethlehem, uh, which is here. Uh, he then leaves to his three sons, divided the area of what we might call Israel. Uh, Archelaus, as we saw, he has the lion's share, but he's already gone. The, the events we're reading about in Luke today, this guy's been gone for 30 years. He was so bad that even the Romans didn't tolerate him, and they took him over to France or Spain or someplace out that way and put Roman uh, sub-governance into this region. That's why we're going to run into Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's not the first. He's like the 13th Roman uh, governor of this uh, area of Judea by the time we are going to bump into him at the crucifixion, which is coming very quickly now in these Gospels. Uh, the other two of Herod's sons, Antipas, was given this, uh, this northern region of Galilee as well as this strip of land east of the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River, this little blue stripe right here. Uh, the third brother is Philip. He's up here. Uh, I'm going to move this little red spot up there for a reason that will be obvious in a minute. Uh, Philip is a man we're going to run into today in the event we are looking at today in Luke chapter 9. Uh, but regardless of that, the, all of the things we've seen so far from Jesus have been in and around the Sea of Galilee. He's been east of it. He's been a lot west of it. He's going north of it today. But then he's headed toward Jerusalem. And the rest of what we read about is pretty much going to take place all the way down here, which is roughly 125 miles south of that red dot. Uh, all of that's going to be uh, important. So what's Jesus going to do in these three verses? Well, he's going to intensify the training. He's going to ratchet these men up to the, uh, to the issue that he, he's most concerned with. And finally, he's going to get them alone. You remember, we, he tried, we, they were trying to have a bit of a, of a debrief uh, last time in Luke chapter 9, where, where the disciples had been sent out to be uh, healing people and casting out demons and doing all of these sort of preaching. And they were attempting to do that just north of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd saw them and followed them. So it turned into the feeding of the 5,000. This time, Jesus is going to take these men all the way up to Mount Hermon. Uh, <clears throat> this little thing is Mount Hermon. He's going to do it all the way up. That's as far north as Jesus is going to get in his lifetime. It's as far north as you can get and still be in Israel. Uh, so he's going to have them at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, <clears throat> I've got to um, 
if, if again, that's not in Luke. Let me just read you these three verses from Luke chapter nine, verses 18, 19, and 20. It says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now that's Luke's coverage. And you're probably aware of the fact that in Matthew, uh, a lot more is, uh, is put forth that has literally changed the surface of the earth for the last 2,000 years. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 13, is, uh, here is Matthew's account of, of, um, of what we just read out of Luke. He said, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we've got to unpack this. You probably know where that's going. That's, that's the famous passage in Matthew where Jesus says, on, on, on you, on, on this rock, I'm going to form my church. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has used that verse for the last 2,000 years uh, to purport that the Pope uh, ancestry back to Peter is why there is uh, such a thing as a Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. That is a total misread of this passage, uh, which we're not going to get to this week. We will get to next week. I want to lead into that. Uh, this week, because it's very, very important in this notion of Caesarea Philippi. A fascinating, fascinating place. The last time that Bobby and I were, were uh, privileged to be in Israel, we made it to Caesarea Philippi. It's not easy. It's a long, long way up. It's um, through the Golan Heights. Uh, but when you get there, it is worth every effort that you made. It's about 35 miles north of the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, uh, previously we talked about the fact that this, this entire, <clears throat> this valley is a unique feature on the surface of the earth. It's a rift valley for one thing, meaning rather than tectonic plates sliding across each other, which you think of the San Andreas Fault and things of this nature, this is a rift valley. This is something opposite. The tectonic plates divide, and they open up and leave a valley through the middle of it. That's the Jordan Valley. And it's beginning up here at Mount Hermon. It's 90, roughly 9,200 feet above sea level. Uh, just to compare that, if you're riding up 385 and you see those mountains of North Carolina, the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi River, I think, is Mount Mitchell. And it's 3,600, something, 3,800, something like that. Uh, so, this, so this thing is three times the height of those mountains that you're seeing as you're... That's the lowest place on the surface of the earth. Uh, so... This is quite a, a downhill ride. You're going from almost 10,000 feet elevation to almost 2,000 feet minus elevation. So almost two miles down is this valley. 
this rift valley, and it's beginning up here. Now, when you get to this place called Caesarea Philippi, you, what you see, the, the prominent feature today is this enormous stone wall, cliff, with an enormous hole in it. And it's that hole where Jesus has gone. It's that hole that, that has formed a, a focal point for thousands of years with everybody who saw it because out of that hole flowed the Jordan River. It's a grotto. There's a, there's a deep, deep, deep grotto in the middle of this thing. It's coming off of, of Mount Hermon and the mountain range that Hermon is in and all of these water sources uh, are underground and one of them, the main source of the Jordan River comes flowing out of this enormous cave opening in the middle of an enormous rock cliff. You can't miss this, this thing. Uh, and I say everybody who's gone through there has been stunned by it and they built temples. Alexander the Great was one of the first, one of the earlier ones at least, who, who built a large temple. And he built it right in front of the opening of the cave. Uh, there have been many, many uh, temples built in, in that little, right in front of, of the opening there, there's uh, a sort of a plateau, if you will, a ridge, a flattened part of the ridge. And on that space, uh, these things have been built. The Temple of Augustus, Herod the Great built that one. That was after Alexander the Great. Uh, the Grotto, of course, or the Cave, the court of Pan and the nymphs, that was a, a built uh, courtyard, a temple of Zeus, a court of Nemesis, a tomb temple of the sacred goats, and a temple of Pan and the dancing goats. Now, why do I mention goats all of the time? Because the Greeks, as you know, had a vast mythology of gods and goddesses. And Pan is the god that they labeled with this area at Caesarea Philippi. Pan, uh, you, you've all probably seen pictures of that guy. He, he purportedly, uh, his upper torso was the body of a man. The lower torso was with the legs of a goat. Along comes Caesar Augustus. This is 200 years after Alexander the Great. And Augustus being superstitious, all the, all the mythology of Greece has flowed into the mythology of Rome. Augustus is a Capricorn, zoologically. Yeah. And uh, he's really, really taken. You know who Capricorn was? A goat. So here we go again, more goats. And that's why all of these temples were built to goats. The big opening in the cliff was called the Grotto of Pan, the Grotto of this God. Why? Because Pan, being part goat, he was the god of the outdoors. He was, uh, you could think of him today perhaps as a nomad. He lived in caves. Uh, he helped shepherds. He helped uh, all of those kinds of things, theoretically with, with Greece and Rome. So you've got all of this, uh, all of this goat uh, pan orientation and temples seven different temples built 
in this space. Now, if you go there today, you won't see a single one of them. Over time, you've, you've had marauders, you've had raiders, you had the crusades, you had uh, uh, Islam took over this area roughly 1050 AD. Since then, it's been under Islamic control until 1967. <laughs> Not too long ago, uh, the Israelis took back Mount Hermon and the Grotto of Pan and all of this area where we find Jesus today. Now, there's a reason that I'm telling you all of this uh, that will come out later. Um, <clears throat> Book of Enoch. Enoch is not part of scripture. Enoch is pseudopigrapha. It is pseudo. Uh, it is not uh, relied upon by, uh, by Protestantism. Uh, but Enoch talks about the notion of the demonic angels who are going to come and uh, have intercourse with, with the human women created by God. I'm now in the first five chapters of Genesis. From them, perhaps Nephilim come. All of that, according to Enoch, took place in the Mount Hermon, Dan, Caesarea Philippi area. All of these things start building. Book of First Kings, Jeroboam, when Israel is divided into northern and southern kingdoms, southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel, the very first king of the northern kingdom was Jeroboam the first. He goes up to Dan, which is about three miles from, from the grotto, from where Jesus is with his disciples. And he builds... Uh, he builds all of these edifices to, to worship. He builds false gods. They, they, he gets northern kingdom of Israel worshiping Baal, uh, worshiping all of the false gods, and he totally destroys it. First uh, Kings 12, let me just, um, that's, that's probably worth finding. First Kings 12, verses 26, 7, and 8 read like this. And Jeroboam, well, let me start with 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Now, talking about this northern region down here is where Shechem is. Then he's going to keep going north. This is the northern kingdom of Israel, first king. Jeroboam the first, verse 26 of 1 Kings chapter 12. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, king of the southern kingdom, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So, verse 28 the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he builds these false gods at Dan and gets them worshiping right where Jesus is going with his disciples. <coughs> and Bethel. What's that? And Bethel. Bethel, he was, he, they worship all over the, the northern kingdom, but preeminently at Dan, 
that was that was the high place. And he, in fact, he was going to go up uh, there and live, as did most of the uh, people who came through. They couldn't avoid this place. It was so magnetic, and it remains magnetic today. Uh, by the way, a big earthquake blocked that flow of water in 1033 AD, a thousand years ago. So if you go there today, you won't see water coming out of the cave. You'll see water coming up in a spring just in front of the cave. Uh, Titus, when Titus comes in to kill all of the Jews, this is when Jerusalem gets destroyed in 70 AD, Titus sets up his headquarters at Caesarea Philippi. And for sport, he murders about 2,500 Jews to celebrate his brother's birthday. So my point being that many, many things continue to be a focal point uh, of, of this area. Today, if you look on a map, you'll see the word banyas because Arabic doesn't have a P sound. It doesn't have a P for pan. So it's banyas, the town of banyas. Uh, there was a town built here. Herod the Great built it. When his son Philip gets that neck of the woods, Philip enlarges the town changes its name to Caesarea Philippi. Caesar for Augustus, Philippi to honor himself. Caesarea Philippi. Now, why do I go through all of this nonsense? Well, let's get back to this, uh, these three verses out of Luke. The disciples, Jesus is aware, have got to know how to answer one question. And we've seen this question come up repeatedly in Luke. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that they're with and they're following and they're giving their allegiance to? Verse 28, Luke is the only one, he may not mention Caesarea Philippi, but he is the only one of the gospel writers that mentions the fact that Jesus is off alone praying. The disciples are with him, but he is alone praying. Jesus says, and he's up in this Caesarea Philippi. He asks them a question. He's going to ask them two, but he asks them the first. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? This question has been asked before and answered before in Luke. <clears throat> answered the same way. And as we read in Matthew, it's answered the same way there. Some people say John the Baptist. That makes a little sense. They were both cousins. They both uh, preached somewhat similar things, if you were uninitiated. Some say Elijah, that comes from the last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, where Malachi says, one day Elijah's coming. Well, he's actually referring to John the Baptist there, but, but uh, hindsight's easy. So you could understand people saying, okay, maybe this is Elijah. Some of them in, in Luke, he says, one of the prophets of old perhaps has come back. And we saw in Matthew, Matthew even mentioned specifically, perhaps it's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Verse uh, 19 is where these disciples are going through the crowd's confusion. And the confusion is as, as if anything, it's worse today than it was here. We tend to read into these accounts, we say, why didn't these guys figure this out? Uh, I would argue that perhaps the confusion is greater today uh, than it ever has been. Beginning about 1900, the so-called scholars of the world, some of them missionaries, some of them, uh, uh, Albert Schweitzer comes to mind, medical missionary to Africa. 
uh, wrote a very, very famous and influential book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Uh, That's one of of hundreds of such books that have been been written over this last hundred year time frame. And I will tell you, if I could find my Westminster Confession that I brought with me, here we go. I took the thin version, it's so thin I can't find it. Uh, Let me read you the best statement I think that has been written about about this uh, issue. And it comes from the opening chapter of the Westminster Confession, the chapter on scripture. Paragraph four says this, one sentence. The authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or any church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Failure to believe that statement has put the world in the situation where we are today. And all of these so-called scholars writing about the quest for the historical Jesus have all had one thing in common. They have to prove it. They have to uh, find proof. Uh, This book isn't good enough for them because obviously this book contains miracles and we can't prove miracles. So this book can't be believed therefore. Uh, So all of these things are conspiring to leave the world today as as confused about this one simple question as everything we're reading here in Luke. Who is Jesus? Uh, The world will will answer that many, many ways, and they're all poor answers. Now, verse 20, here's the clincher. Jesus is going to make this personal. He's asked them who the crowds believe. Now he says, but who do you say that I am? You remember last week when we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000, that emphasis placed upon that you. Uh, The disciples came to Jesus. They were tired, worn out. They wanted to go home and rest. Uh, There were 5,000 plus people. And they said, well, come on, Jesus, send them on home. The sun's going down. We can't feed them. Let's just call it a day. And Jesus turned around and said, no, you feed them. Same emphasis here in the Greek with this question. Okay, I hear what the crowd says, but who do you, disciples, who do you say that I am? Not surprisingly, Peter. Peter speaks up here in Luke. He he says the Christ of God. Now that word Christ is the key word there in that statement. That word Christ is Greek for Messiah. The anointed one. What is anointing? Anointing is, is uh, what was done uh, at God's direction for priests, for prophets, especially for the kings. And of course, uh, Peter saying, you are the anointed one. Now, back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's expanded a bit in Matthew In Matthew 16, Jesus' response, Matthew 16, verses 17 to 20, Jesus responds to Peter's words. These are not found in the Luke account. But uh, in in Matthew chapter 16, verse, or 
Yes, chapter 16, verse 17, it says, and Jesus answered him, that is Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, that is where Roman Catholicism has derived the notion of, of the Pope and the, the physical ascendancy uh, perhaps uh, from Peter himself. Uh, then verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's going to be in Luke also. And we're going to, again, we're going to uh, go back and, and recover this full theme next week, Lord willing, and take it further. Uh, but for right now, all I want us to see is the incredible statement that this man Peter has made. Now, it won't be, we won't even get out of this chapter before Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan, talking to Peter. Uh, so you don't need to confuse Peter with, with any sort of, of uh, super, uh, super apostle or anything like that. But Peter has, has blurted out these words that are the only correct answer to the question. And it's the only correct answer that, that you and I need to give to this question. Because we learn from Matthew's account that, that Jesus says, you didn't come up with this on your own. You couldn't have come up with this on your own. The only way you came up with this is because God has given you this insight. What's he saying there? When you put those things together, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying Peter is a person who has been regenerated. Uh, Ezekiel 36, his heart of stone has been removed. He's been given a heart of flesh so that he can see and receive the truth. He is a man of faith. Remember, we keep emphasizing faith as, as cat, K-A-T. The knowledge, the assent, but the trust factor. That's the important one, trust, conviction, implementing what I know to be correct in my heart. It doesn't do me any good just to say, okay, I've heard about Jesus. It's plausible, makes sense to me. That won't, that's not a Christian. The Christian has to say, yes, I see the, the truth of this word and I intend to live my life accordingly. I will be a sinner in the process. I will not live perfectly, but I am dedicated and convicted of the truth and I'm going to live my life accordingly. That is what Jesus says to Peter from Matthew when he's saying, you didn't come up with this on your own. You could not have because an unbeliever won't and can't. Peter declared that Jesus came from God, the promised savior sent to bring salvation. Again, the only important issue here is whether you and I can make that same statement. Who is Jesus? Answer that question in your heart to prove to you that these disciples and none of us ever become perfect in this life the opening chapter of Acts, these same men, Acts chapter one, verse six, says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus is about to, to ascend. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And Jesus must have thought, oh my goodness, do we have to go back to Caesarea Philippi? Uh, they're still getting it wrong. It, it takes time. And we read last week how eventually they get it. There in this book of Acts, you see very, very shortly from that point. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to come at Pentecost. When Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes and every Christian from that moment forth has the Holy Spirit. You and I, if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have the Holy Spirit and we have the ability to make this answer correct. And only because of it. It's important. It's important that, that we get this right. Here's Romans 10, verses 8, 9, and 10. They say this, but what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. That little passage out of Romans 10 covers exactly what we've just seen Peter do. Jesus has come to his disciples and said, but now I'm about to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. He's going to tell them that. We'll see that next week, Lord willing. But in the meantime, he says, before I go there, I want you to tell me who you say that I am. And he's looking for exactly what Peter has, has given him. Now, why did I want to go through all of that absurd geography and uh, history and all of those things about this weird, weird place that they're standing. This, this grotto of Pan. Because Jesus, I think, does nothing haphazardly. Where does he take his disciples? Where does he make this declaration? And he's going to tell them next that he's going to go to Jerusalem in order to go to a cross and die. They don't understand why. They, don't, they won't get that. But Jesus is standing there in front of where some people purport the most evil acts on the planet originated, if you believe what Enoch is saying, and I <coughs> mostly don't. But nonetheless, it was spoken without a doubt where Jeroboam goes straight to build golden calves for the northern kingdom and take them into idolatry, where Alexander the Great and all of these people see a hole in a cliff and start to worship it and build temple after temple after temple, seven temples built in front of this giant cave, which ironically is honoring a god named Pan, who is the god of shepherds. And here is the shepherd of the sheep standing in front of all of this. And in Matthew 16, when he's talking to Peter in verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. That's the first time church appears in all of the Bible. First time that word appears. All of these declarations are, are made it's as if Jesus is saying the entirety of all of the world's kingdoms, the great kingdoms of Greece and Rome, and I think, frankly, sadly, you could add America, and the West, whatever you want to think of those terms, all of their idolatry falls 
to those who can answer the question, who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that declaration uh, was, I, I can only imagine what those disciples were thinking, standing where they were, looking down that Jordan Valley from, from where they are at Caesarea Philippi. You can see all the way to Damascus, all the way down into the Sea of Galilee, almost to the Mediterranean Sea. It's only about 20 miles away to the west. The centerpiece of idolatry in the history of the world and Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, comes and dislodges Pan forever. There's no Pan. There is now Jesus and Jesus alone. And we'll, we'll put this back and we'll put it together in one piece and get all the way through this passage uh, next week, Lord willing. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we see these things and uh, don't realize uh, sometimes the gravitas behind uh, where these events take place and what is being said because of them. Uh, your son came and was certainly not frightened to stand in front of the idols of the world of whatever culture. Many people over the history of the world, especially back in the days of Jesus and before, looked at that cave, looked at that grotto and called it the very gate of hell itself. And Jesus stands in front of it and says, I have overcome Satan and I am the savior of this world. Father, help us to be able to answer this question, to look at Jesus, to put Jesus in our own hearts. Give us those hearts of flesh, Father, that we can respond. Make your calling effectual to us so that we can respond. Give us the faith to believe. And with that faith, a knowledge of our sinfulness and a, and a sense that we need to get on our knees and repent of that sin. Justify us in your sight, Father. Adopt us into your family. Walk with us through this life in sanctification. Cause us to persevere to the point where we are glorified before you. Father, these are, this is a magisterial moment. The disciples are beginning to get it. And with this, Jesus can set his face to Jerusalem. And in fact, we'll go to that cross, we'll come out of that tomb, we'll ascend and is now seated on your right hand and we'll come back. That is wonderful news, Father, for everyone who can answer that question correctly. Make us such people, Father, and build us in our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.